Cora always is so creative in bringing us such iconic and memorable characters that are complex, that are rounded, and heck, and sometimes they are the evil ones. I think horror lets us love our protagonists and love our antagonists. It allows us to like both. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Writer-director Gigi Saul Guerrero is a fireball of energy with a passion for horror. Her love for the genre bleeds through every frame of her films, including her latest, Bingo Hell. Strap yourself in for this roller coaster interview conducted by History of Horror showrunner Kurt Zienga. Hola, I'm Gigi Saul Guerrero, also known as La Muñeca del Terror. You started in, in acting, right? Right. No, I started with acting by accident, actually. So when I moved to Canada, uh, I needed an elective course. And my school was, you know, the only one available was drama class. So I was like, oh, that's an easy one to skip. I can just go to drama class. And I ended up loving it. I became a theater junkie. Like, I wanted to be the next Broadway star that speaks Spanish. <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. And so my parents were like, we should get you an agent. I booked my first commercial as a young teen, and that's the moment I was like, the lights, the crew, okay, we gotta learn how to make movies. Everything went down, downhill from there. <laughs> what kind of director do you think you are? You know, there are actors, directors, and there are some who are mostly visual, or some, you know, or it's a little bit of both. Like, how do you approach it? You know, if I could be the younger version of Clint Eastwood and do both, actor and director, or maybe the less crazy version of Mel Gibson and both. That's me. <laughs> I'm hoping, you know, that I can make films that I could also be part of that world. But definitely, I see myself as somebody that brings a new fresh take to Latin horror. And that, to me, is a really big goal in my career. Any filmmakers whose work particularly resonate with you, you'd like to emulate? Definitely. A big influence, you know, when I was starting to go to film school was because of the three amigos. Alfonso Cuaron, Iñárritu, and Del Toro. I, you know, I never thought I, could, I would see Mexican directors on the big screen and telling stories in English. That to me was so inspiring. And after seeing their work, that's when I discovered Robert Rodriguez. And that's a guy that is not afraid to go over the border and just break all the rules. Uh, that excited me. And that slowly led me to all the genre things I love like Rob Zombie um, and Tarantino. We were going to talk a little about Del Toro, so let's do that. What does he bring to his films that's so unique to him, where you can like put on pretty much any of his films and know very quickly that you're watching a Del Toro film? Del Toro once said, we're Mexican. And that is already a reason to do this incredible, magical surrealism to his films. I think it's also, you know, Del Toro really proves our culture and our folklore on screen, that we're not afraid of death. We see death so differently, especially in Mexico. We actually are not afraid of it. We embrace it. We cherish it. Heck, we even celebrate it. Like Dia de los Muertos. We look at death 
at a different point of view. And it's almost something that's inviting and mysterious. And I think Del Toro does that so much with his films that just breaks that realm between real and death. But also something that Del Toro has, he, he has a forever child inside him. He always brings so much personality and story behind his monsters in a way that his monsters really feel like people. They feel like us, that we're not perfect. We also have flaws and we also have a story to tell. And his monsters are so humanized and it's beautiful. You look at any of his stories and you actually connect more with the monsters and almost the evil side to his storytelling more than anybody else. And we end up fearing more what humans are capable of rather than the evil or the monstrous creature. I think, you know, his films like Pan's Labyrinth is exactly that. You know, the imagination of this little girl is, is just incredible. And you end up feeling every second of that movie and you end up fearing the humans in it more than anything. He's kind of directed films that, on the one hand, these very artistic films like Pan's Labyrinth, Devil's Backbone, of course. And then he also can direct Blade Two, for instance. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I think Del Toro, he's just not afraid to have fun. I, I think he proves he's a fan of the genre. He's a fan of movies. And he even does that through all the incredible practical effects and the makeup, the creature designs. It's like somebody just... Let him run free. I think that's every filmmaker's dream, is to just have that freedom to create. And he allows us to be part of it. I think that's what makes Del Toro's films, they're so inviting, right? They're so inviting, you feel part of these worlds. And even like, like Hellboy, it's a blast. I, I haven't been at the edge of my seat watching something like, is this a Del Toro film? No way, it just, it doesn't stop. So he's capable of doing anything. And even from that to uh, Shape of Water, so beautiful. Also in the sense that it's a love story that you can actually connect to. I never thought I would, I would see a fish that way, to be honest, but I did. <laughs> I remember watching that with my dad and he was so confused. He was like, I don't know. Do I feel for this fish or do I feel for her? And I'm like, don't worry, Papa, just, just watch the movie. And the whole movie, he's like, I don't know. I like this fish, but he's still a fish. And I was like, don't worry, Dad, just watch the movie. He's so loud in the theater. That's why I can't take him to all the movies. But <laughs> but Shape of Water was was a really fun, fun film to watch with him. I personally love Pacific Rim. I don't care what anyone says. <laughs> Pacific Rim was a blast. That was a nonstop action, nonstop lights and robots and all my dreams come true in one film. Like, it's exactly the example we were talking about. Like, the tour just continues to prove us whatever you give him, he'll deliver. At Pacific Rim, I loved it. I, I felt like a kid again with giant robots attacking the screen. What's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Now let's jump to um, The Frighteners. First, what happens in The Frighteners? Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, raise your hand. If you have a crush on Michael J. Fox, definitely me. Frighteners, what a film. Th that movie was definitely a childhood favorite of mine. The reason I love it so much is that we're so used to, you know, seeing all these psychics use their powers in certain ways to find evil or to find more answers. But in this case, Michael J. Fox, he's a con artist. That's what he is in this film. Sure, he's a psychic, he can see ghosts, but this is him using his power to make that extra buck. To me, that was already a protagonist that I like because he felt flawed, like all of us. We're all starving artists, and he definitely shows that in the film. But not only that, I think this is one of Peter Jackson's best films. It was so much fun. And I think just throughout the film with Michael J. Fox, how he's trying to find what these numbers mean as he's discovering that death is actually a lot closer than he thought, it was a really creative idea. But also The Frighteners brings the subgenre of dark comedy to another level. I think Peter Jackson just wasn't afraid to go in that direction, even though 
He was soon to become the CGI king because of Lord of the Rings. This was a really good first example of the imagination that he carries. Because he came from making such, I don't want to call it trash horror, but there's a word for it in the kind of films he would do. I guess you would say, how would you call it? Splatter horror? Yeah, I could say splatter right? films. <laughs> splatter horror. Yeah, Peter Jackson's splatter horror was so memorable, so much fun. But then with Frighteners, there was none of that gore, really. There really wasn't. But it was so horrific when the characters were really grounded and when they were actually in trouble. When everybody starts dying off and Michael J. Fox does not know what to do. But the characters in Frighteners, I think, is the most memorable thing. What's his name? The agent. Jeffrey Combs. I just interviewed him this morning. Did you? Okay, Jeffrey Combs made Frighteners. I hope he hears this, but he made that movie incredible. I think that's his best performance ever. No secret agent has ever been that cool. Look at his haircut and the way he speaks and his eyes. It was just so funny to me to watch Jeffrey do that. And to me, Frighteners was so much fun. That border between real life and death was really neat and how Michael J. Fox's only reason of why having this power is because he went through a traumatic experience. That to me was a good enough reason to have that. I think that's relatable because that I think that creates a different perspective in life. When you go through something so intense, so harsh, it changes you as a person. It changes your chapter in your life and it changes your point of view. In this case, I think it created for him a new sensibility. I can relate to that. I'm Mexican. We believe in ghosts. And I think also at the time, Frighteners, you know, I loved Michael J. Fox because of Back to the Future. So seeing him in this kind of film where he's he's a con artist, he's not a good guy, like he's tricking people into this. It was such an interesting take uh, in seeing such a classic and iconic actor from the 80s play this. And also with Peter Jackson's visionary directing with such cool shots from super close up, suddenly handheld, but also having this wacky subgenre that is so funny and so humorous. I, you know, I think he really flipped the table for dark comedies with Frighteners. It's too bad that it's so underrated. Yep, indeed. It also ends in like such a different place and it started out you know it starts all fun and friendly and kind of bright and then by the end you're in the abandoned mental institution being 100%. chased by serial killers 100 percent. you're right like it really went from being in the town it looked quite normal quite classic but suddenly it took this turn and in this asylum and suddenly there's cobwebs and the colors changed and the deaths started getting more intense Even the ghosts were dying. How do ghosts die? Ghosts die in Frighteners. That to me doesn't make any sense, but I felt for them that they're dying again. <laughs> but that was terrifying. Even the opening scene is, to me, I've seen Dee Wallace before, and I didn't recognize her in the opening of Frighteners. I was like, what is this lady with the long hair look so familiar? And suddenly hit me, oh my gosh, it's Dee Wallace. And she played so crazy in this film. I was frightened by her. I remember seeing this as a kid and being afraid of this girl in my class that looked a lot like her when I was young. I was like, oh, that girl with the long brown hair. She's going to be too similar to Dee Wallace in The Frightener. So I, <laughs> I was already afraid. Uh, yeah, that's a little anecdote I had to share. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a different performance for her, particularly around the time when she was known as more of the nice, you know, the nice lady character. And they kind of exactly. they, they play off of that for sure. Right. And. Your sympathy is with with her all the way up until she reveals her true nature. 100%. But you know, as an actor, I think that's one of the most exciting moments where you're used to being seen in a certain way in certain characters. And then suddenly, you know, gives you the opportunity of playing crazy, being covered in blood, or have the coolest death ever. As an actor, it's like, Oh, hell yeah. I'm so in. And you get to just explore this different side of you that you've never seen before. And you can tell, especially in genre films, that actors have a blast exploring such an opposite side of who they are. That's why I think that's why Jeffrey killed it in Frighteners. He just probably said one morning, I'm going to go crazy and nobody's going to stop me. <laughs> it was so memorable. Best character of the film. So a particular appeal to the psychic film as far as like either being able to 
well, the different kinds of psychic films. One's more the having premonitions and seeing the future. And then there's the kind where you can explode people's heads with your mind. If I was a psychic, I would love to explode people's heads with my mind. I think it would make my life so much easier. I don't like you. I don't like you. Today, I like you. Moving on. <laughs> I think psychics, I'm a big believer in them. I'm a big believer that people have these sensibilities that are unknown. And I think in film, it allows us to explore all possibilities, but also explore the threat of the unknown. I think the threat of the unexplained, the weird, the strange, and the stuff that you can't prove, that to me is really interesting, especially in films, because you're able to explore a, a new realm from what reality is or from what we think is the norm. I think it's also scary in the sense that You don't want to invite something that wasn't welcome in the first place. And I think psychics are able to do that. Even like, for example, with Dr. Sleep, these are like psychic vampires capturing kids who are the easiest to capture, who are the most vulnerable to kill and take from them everything, everything that ever mattered. And that's a power that you can't quite fight with. And that terrifies me. <laughs> But I think also, also psychics can be really cool. Heck, they can be the coolest heroes in a film. When you look at Michael J. Fox or the coolest anti-heroes when you look at Beetlejuice as well. You look at Beetlejuice or Winona Ryder, somebody that, you know, as a young girl, I resonated with her a lot. With Winona and Beetlejuice, I, as a kid, especially being from Mexico, somebody that loves death, we celebrate death. We even paint our faces in Calavera makeup. When I saw Beetlejuice, I really liked this girl because she wasn't afraid of it. And she embraced it. Not only that, she was knocking on their door and she was saying, I wish I was dead. Because I think you're able to explore all, all things and endless limits when you put yourself in another realm. I think Winona's character was able to do that and was able to teach us something that we shouldn't be quite afraid of. I love that dynamic and the Beetlejuice family, that it's the ghosts that were the friendly ones. <laughs> They're the ones being terrorized by the humans. I had never seen that before. That was awesome. I wish Beetlejuice was real. I really do. I, I wish I could just grab Beetlejuice and say his name three times and just throw him in my neighbor's yard. I, man, those neighbors drive me crazy. I'm like, okay, whew, go, go terrorize them. <laughs> of course, Beetlejuice also gives you a view of the afterlife that unattractive but in a different kind of way it's not Definitely. like it's not hell but it's a kind of hell it's a bureaucracy had there been a representation of the afterworld quite like that before do you think never and never and especially not a hell that was fun to watch definitely in my upbringing uh, being catholic it was something to be afraid of but then tim burton introduced us you know this this hell that is like i actually want to go there <laughs> it looks like the coolest theme park I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like that, but also a film that was able to mix all genres into one and staying practical. That's incredible. You can totally tell in Tim Burton's background of, of animation and stop motion. I think that is what made his imagination shine. His hell was so original because he put his best qualities on the screen, which was animation and stop motion. <laughs> I wish I was dead and I was part of the Beetlejuice world. But, oh, but not only that, you can see in Tim Burton in, in the house how there's a miniature of everything. And it's almost, I think it's a representation of Burton's sandcastle of toys, of just him playing with all his favorite things and just making this a reality. Beetlejuice rocks. I, I, I will say that forever. I would say Beetlejuice rocks three times so I can watch it again. <laughs> And that's another filmmaker where you usually can tell in most of his movies pretty quickly visually. It's unusual for these days, especially I think for people who have such a pronounced visual style. Yeah, incredibly unique. Um, and just the use of fashion and horror and the colors. Pretty much any time we think of the colors purple, black and white, that's Beetlejuice with a little hint of green. You know, he's able to bring so much imagery that is memorable.
When the pandemic Ooh. started, were you one of the people who went and watched every pandemic film they could find? Or no? Yes. Well, let me tell you, though, my pandemic was was something. My quarantine was something because I, I was like, I was ready to move out. I was like, now's my time, you know, until it all happened. I was like, well, mom and dad looks like I'm staying a little longer. And for my parents being Mexican, they're like, yeah, she's staying till she's married. I'm like, no, I need to leave the house now. So definitely, you know, my quarantine and my sister happened the same thing. So we're one loud, crazy Latino family talking a lot every day. But we started this new thing uh, together of watching a different movie every second day. And the rules were, you know, we all take turns of what to watch. And you have to sit down and watch it. You can't complain. So for me, I was like, oh, I'm going to show them every scary movie possible and traumatize them. Because my family, they don't, they don't watch scary movies. But in this case, you know, I ended up choosing Contagion without even thinking about it much. And it was early in the pandemic. It was mid-March. It was when things were just starting. And there wasn't really answers to what 2020 had in store for us. So I put on Contagion. I've seen it before, and my face five minutes in. It was so real. Contagion was so ahead of its time. It's like it knew what was going to happen, literally. And Contagion actually showed us exactly from how people are afraid of the unknown, and it showed us exactly how fake news can happen, and it even showed us exactly how easy it is to pass on an infection. But I think what Contagion did really, really smart was it would always focus the frame very closely on objects from the peanuts at the airport to the door handle at the school to shaking hands to the pole on the bus. It focused so closely on close-ups of that. It did not have to be on the nose or exposition to explain the bacteria is here. Not at all. You as an audience just knew, oh, man. I am not washing my hands enough, 100%. I think Jude Law's character, to me, was one of my favorites in Contagion because he was exactly what bloggers have destroyed the internet <laughs> over the past, like, 10 years. It's the people that we relate to because we think, oh, they're like me. They're like me. They're not in some big news station or big radio or anything. So these conspiracy theories that Jude Law was saying... I would believe them, too. And that's really scary. And I think what Contagion did perfect was to show us that the deadliest infection is fear. That's the worst kind of spread, I think, that can wipe out the entire human existence is fear. That's something we can't control, especially how populated our world is. Once fear hits one person, it has spread to another 10, another 20, another 40. And you can see that in the movie Contagion, exactly when fear spreads, it's all hell breaks loose. I think it was way out of its time. It was like the script was taken exactly and put on the news. Wash your hands all the time. Don't touch your face. Apparently we touch our face over 3,000 times a day. All these things, all these quotes in Contagion literally were being said on the news. And I think that's why suddenly Contagion became this film, this number one film and the streaming platforms that everybody just had to watch again. I think to almost remind ourselves, nah, this is not real. What's happening? Nah, we only see that in the films, in the movies. But then we see movies like that and we've, we've been warned for a long time that this is possible. And once we all have that instinct kick in for survival, that's when um, I think it's the scariest times of our lives. Do you have any thoughts on Train to Busan? I love Train to Busan. Oh, my gosh. That was one of the other films I told my family. I'm like, okay, I have a great family drama on a train. You guys are going to love it. Oh, my mom's like, I love family dramas. I'm like, yeah, it's about a dad 
you know, trying to get that trust and, and, and that love back with his daughter. You'll love it. It all takes place in a train. Ay, so wonderful. <laughs> my, my, my family's face. Ay, Dios santo. It was so much fun. I think definitely Train to Busan brought back that thrill of an action zombie film. I think also seeing a Korean zombie film, I haven't seen anything like that. And I think Korean foreign films have brought us incredible, memorable movies. Do you look at Old Boy? Man, amazing. So I was ready for a zombie one. I was ready. And the way it starts with a zombified deer, I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm hooked. Put on the popcorn, give me a beer. I'm ready to watch Train to Busan. I already an infected animal. I'm ready. Is this going to be about kill, uh, like <laughs> zombie deers? What's this going to be? But always I find foreign films such as Train to Busan, they're really good at world building the family dynamics. They're really good at bringing those relatable subject matters such as divorce, dysfunctional families. And I think that's what made this father in Train to Busan so likable because he's trying Every second in that film, he's trying to, how do I get my daughter back? But he's doing it not in the best ways. I'm like, come on, man. You know how to, come on. She's only a kid. So that to me is always beautiful when you have strong characters, no matter the crazy situation, no matter the place uh, or the time. If your characters have something I can relate to, and in this case is the love between a father and a daughter, I'm going to watch that. My, my dad means everything to me. So when I saw him at the end of the film get bitten, I felt that moment. I really, really did. And it was that sign that his daughter loves, loves him. Just when they finally had that bond and that trust, they got broken. Poor little girl, <laughs> poor little girl. Also, I think Train to Busan has one of the most strong and incredible visual endings. Going through that tunnel with the little girl holding hands with a stranger that she met uh, on the bus, that is now, she going to be her mom. She going to take care of her, this stranger on the train, that they both lost somebody. I think that's one of the most incredible endings that people can't come together. People can't put aside their differences and look at one another as equals and look at one another as, as equals to help each other out. So to me, Train to Busan had a very strong ending. And also, a great ending for a franchise that I need to watch ASAP. I need more zombies on a train. Not only zombies on a train, but zombies that are all pulling a train together and stopping this train. I'm like, how is this possible? Oh my God. Like I was screaming at the top of my lungs. I did not think zombies could get crazier than the moment that they're all packing each other to stop this train. Coolest moment of the movie, I think. Coolest moment. I had to rewind that. My mom's like, stop it. Stop showing me that part. I was going to move on to Rack, but we can talk a little bit more about Train to Busan and the zombies. <laughs> I just have to say, when you thought zombies couldn't be anything more, you would think zombies have been fully done. We've done them fast. We've done them slow. We've done them green. We've done them pale. We've done them in every shape and form. Train to Busan still found a way to make them just a little different. Let's make them blind in the dark. Perfect. Perfect. But, but what's really cool is just the setting in a train. There's only one way you could go, either forwards or backwards. That, to me, is already incredibly unique and original and claustrophobic for these characters, especially when they're all stuck in the bathroom or in those, those tiny doors. I feel, you know, that tight space and that claustrophobia. I'm already scared of everything, believe it or not. But if I was on that train, it'd be a whole other story. I, I don't think a Latina with me would make it. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm gonna take these earrings off and it's time to kick some zombie butt. Let me try. But every time I've seen Train to Busan, I love that moment when the train goes in those tunnels where it goes from dark to light and how the zombies cannot see you. Man, that's probably the most tense part of the film. When these people have to come together to go forwards and they have to fight through them. That was super cool. I, I love when strangers come together in a film. 
because that's probably not going to happen in our world. So I might as well enjoy it in a movie. <laughs> What is the plot of Wreck? Well, you can either call it Wreck, Record, Press Play, you name it. Wreck is an incredible Spanish foreign film. It's actually one of the most unique infection, zombie-esque, found footage, quarantine-setted film I've ever seen. I, it's almost hard to describe it because I, I've never seen anything like that. Wreck is all found footage through the lens of this journalist following just a regular good old night at the job with these firefighters until they get this call at this building. But there's a woman that's in a little bit of trouble. Maybe she's sick. And the moment that the firefighter team gets there to this building, everybody's already in panic. People are already feeling very strange with the ladies screaming. And there's already cops there. There's already helicopters there. And then suddenly, once the firefighters and this journalist go all the way in, the whole building gets locked down and basically gets quarantined. Kind of sounds like my house last year and this year. <laughs> Everybody gets stuck in this building. And man, that's when all hell breaks loose, that there's an infection spreading really fast in the building. How is the film kind of technically ingenious as far as the cinematography and the sound, use of sound in the film? I think what Wreck did incredibly right was also the use of unknown actors. It really felt so real. It felt like we were actually documenting these people. And I think one of the tricks that Paco and his partner Jaume did is that they wouldn't tell the actors everything that they were going to film, really keeping them in that real aesthetic of what is happening today. I have no idea what I'm expecting today. And I think that really kept the tension high. And just the use of found footage worked very organically. It didn't feel forced. And we've seen those techniques many, many times before. I think it's been years of found footage, but Reich brought a new twist to it. That it looked like we were following real people, no known actors or added score or anything like that. It was all use of diegetic sounds. All of it was an incredible use of what's actually on the frame and enhancing those sounds. The echo in the building, when you hear at the top story, that a firefighter just got thrown off the top floor all the way down. That echo and that use of sound design really makes an audience feel like we're there. Not only that, it's just incredible use of the location of what you can and cannot see, because then that keeps it all unknown. And you can only see through the camera as an audience member. That, that's the only way you can follow this movie is through them recording. Rex surprised us with a really cool twist. Just when you thought this was about an unexplained mutated rabies disease or something that you think we got from the small dog or the little girl in the building, we end up in this crawl space attic place that is showing us that this was all a possession? This is all some sort of exorcism gone wrong? Okay, I'm Catholic and that terrified me. I was like, okay, we need to stop this movie right now. This is too real, this is too real. I love that twist. Just, just when we thought this was another zombie biting raby thing, it wasn't. It truly left us wondering what exactly is this mutated possession or mutated demon that is spreading. And also when we find out the person living up there all on their own this whole time, <sighs> night vision is forever my nightmare, thanks to Rick. <laughs> Let me just put it like that. But it opened up some incredible doors for the franchise. To me, Rick allowed for Rick to, to scare us so much more, especially in my culture, believing in and demons, possessions, the devil, it allowed in Wreck to, to actually explore that realm a lot more than your typical infection bite. It left us just questioning so much of how did this even happen? 
or where else it could go. I absolutely love that dynamic of Rick. Can you describe what the um, infected look like in this film and why they're very distinctive and scary looking? In Rick, the first image you see, you always see it in the most unexpected characters. The first one is an old lady and just this regular, good old moo-moo-type gown, just covered and drenched in blood. What did she eat? <laughs> That's the first thing I'm asking, but what I really like about how this infection looks is that people still look like people. People look like they're going through some really bad fever or some really bad disease, and their eyes are not red with contacts, but red with almost like bloodshot eyes. And you can see the breakout in their skin Heck, looks like me after a Saturday night when I had McDonald's, very drunk. <laughs> they looked so sick, but in a believable way. And especially when one of the characters starts talking about how one of the dogs was sick in the building. They start talking about this rabid thing, this, these rabies. Animals look like that. They get wet, sweaty, their eyes go red, foaming at the mouth. And when you put all that in the characters and the humans, I mean, it doesn't look far from what it could be in reality. I think that's what makes these characters really, really scary. When you first see it in an old, vulnerable lady, and then you see it in a little girl. Whew, no kids for me. I'm not babysitting for a while, that's for sure. But that little girl from the beginning was giving us hints of symptoms with coughing, saying I don't feel good, saying she misses her dog, her mom being worried, oh, it's only tonsillitis. That's definitely, I think, what we look like when we're sick. So it was very believable in that sense, but how quickly it spreads with just the bite or the spread of blood into your eye, that was really scary. One of my first short films, when I was still in film school, and you can see it on YouTube, uh, I entered a competition where you have to make a famous movie into 60 seconds. So I said, well, I'm gonna make Wreck in 60 seconds. And that exact shot at the end, we wanted to replicate it. And I was like, well, why don't we just put me, it was me acting as, as the journalist, put me on top of a carpet and let's just pull the carpet as hard as we can. And it looks so real. And it actually looks like you get pulled into the darkness. I think that was done incredibly practical. And with $5, we picked the cheapest carpet at the dollar store. <laughs> and we only won second place. I'll never get those five bucks back, but that's okay. Now, mad scientists, what's the... Ooh. They've been constant characters throughout the history of film, I think it's safe to say, certainly since Frankenstein and on. You know, mad scientists, I mean, there's always been this curiosity about science, this curiosity about technology that inspires these characters that are not afraid to, to play with that. I think also mad scientists are people that that we can relate to and see ourselves in them, that it's just people that almost have trouble with who they are. And they just want to create a better version of themselves, whether if it's through technology or through science, you name it. I think mad, mad scientists are one of the most relatable antagonists out there. That's actually exactly the motivation for Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is at least certainly in the book as he was trying to create a better version of himself and instead created right. a worse version of himself. Correct. And even Dr. Henry Frankenstein, Dr. Henry from the beginning when that film opens, I loved him because he was already quoting, let's live dangerously. Are you not afraid of living a little crazy? And we see him, the moment we meet this mad scientist, we meet him at a cemetery, looking at dead bodies, digging up graves. What a great setting. I'm like, I love this guy. <laughs> He's already breaking all the rules. But not only that, I think mad scientists, they're just those kinds of people that wish they were somebody else, I find. And one of the coolest quotes that Dr. Henry would say was, now I know what it feels like to be God. When you have that power, 
you feel unstoppable. You feel like you have no limits. And I think in all, whether it's Jekyll and Hyde or the Invisible Man, when you have that power like God, you're unstoppable and you're the biggest threat. Mad scientists, they're, they're awesome. And a lot of them are very handsome. Let me tell you, let me tell you, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Henry Frankenstein was a very good looking man. I'm like, okay, well, he has good taste. But that to me was one of the most uh, impactful parts of that film was the moment where he screamed, now I know what it feels like to be God. But then that's when you realize, oh, man, what did I do? I have just created a monster. But when all these mad scientists create their project, whether it was they created a monster, I think it's exactly them seeing themselves being created every single time. It's a reflection of themselves. That that's what needs to be worked on, not their project. There's a dedication that lapses into obsessiveness with all of them. Yes. Yeah, they have they have such a big obsession that they're just completely filterless in the gruesomeness and the brutality that they're doing to others. They have no filter at all. Did you see Lee Wanell's Invisible Man? I new, did. The new one? I yeah. did, I did. What did you think of that? Um, I think Lee's interpretation of the Invisible Man was so unexpected in the sense that it was a couple struggling in their relationship. And we follow this woman that had a very relatable subject today. He didn't have to be a scientist. He was just a bad man. And that, to me, was so important for people to see this movie because it was a struggle from this woman that, I mean, that's happening still today, of somebody trying to escape a dangerous relationship, a toxic one. And this guy, this guy in The Invisible Man had such, wow, he, he was so evil in the sense that he had the audacity to make this woman believe she was crazy. But that, in itself, whether it has that supernatural element of somebody invisible or this technology who was creating, just the manipulation part was so relatable today. Anybody can do that to you. Anybody can, can gaslight you into thinking you are nuts and you are crazy. And I think that was what Lee did really, really beautifully in The Invisible Man because the audience felt they were going crazy with her because the answers weren't being told right away we had to find out with her that this was the, the ex-boyfriend this whole time with much bigger plans with his creation. But the fact that it was about a toxic relationship, I think that was excellent. He didn't have to be a crazy scientist. He was just a crazy boyfriend. <laughs> a crazy boyfriend. That's much scarier than a mad, mad scientist, I think. <laughs> yep, exactly. I think the most impactful scene for me, and I remember watching this film with my sister, and this is where we spilt all the popcorn. I still feel bad for the people in the back because we just went, wow, like we spilt all the popcorn was in the restaurant, the restaurant scene with her sister. And suddenly, as she's explaining and begging for help, begging for her sister to pay attention, and the moment that she does, you just see this knife floating. And I love those few seconds that it leaves you lingering. Slap! And then that action just suddenly happens. I don't want to spoil it, but that exact moment when the, the knife just lingers for a split second that keeps us guessing what's the next move, it happens so fast. It's so real. That's exactly how we would react in shock and how Elizabeth Moths just stood there silent and broken in the restaurant. You could feel Every emotion was going through her veins, through her brain, through her soul in that moment that maybe she lost. Maybe she felt that sense of, I lost everything in that second. Incredible.
Sequels. Gremlins 2, the new batch. Let me just start off. I had that ringtone, and everybody in my class was like, JJ. I'm like, they're like, pick up your phone. I'm like, no, this is the best theme song ever. I will still to this day, I will fight anybody that doesn't agree Gremlins is a Christmas film. And then when Gremlins 2 showed up, that's an everyday movie. I'm like, oh, thank you, Joe Dante. You gave me an everyday holiday film. <laughs> but also, one of the best sequels to a movie ever. I think Joe had what every filmmaker's dream is, is to be given all the creative freedom, is to be given just the opportunity to go make anything you want. And you can tell he did exactly that. Just when you thought we couldn't love gremlins, these little mogwais more, he gave us mogwais times a hundred. I mean, I love my little dog Nacho a lot. I swear, Nacho. But I wish I had a little gizmo, a little mogwai on my pocket. So much cuter. My palm's very cute, but nothing happens when I feed him after midnight. So, <laughs> but gremlins too, I think, just has every check mark done from all the cameos in the world of every actor at, of the time in that movie to every single homage of Warner Brothers possible. Even when they throw one of the gremlins through the other side of the wall, <laughs> the bat gremlin, and then there's a, a bat, a Batman sign carved out. Amazing, amazing. But not only that, you got your batch of gremlins to the extreme. In this case, they weren't just like cute and fluffy and then green. These were mutated gremlins. So you get spider gremlins, flying gremlins. You got talking gremlins. And my favorite, you got the bougie gremlins with big red lips, <laughs> super incredible dress and wig, and of course, the flashing gremlin with the sick glasses. You got every single gremlin you could want in a movie. But but those gremlins were taken very carefully in the sense that Joe was like, all right, let's do what we couldn't do in the first film. It's been a few years. I think it was about six years after. I was like, all right, let's take this puppeteering to the extreme. You can actually see that their emotions and their characteristics in their face, especially gizmos, are a lot more beautiful. They're wonderful. And even in the first beginning scenes, before they become gremlins, when these little mogwais are bullying little gizmo to get in that vent, you can see the sadness in his face. And he's like, like so sad. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna beat their butt. I'm gonna kick those little mogwais butts. Gizmo is just so cute, but they were able to do that so much more. They were able to characterize them. They were able to make them dance and walk. We couldn't see that in the first film. And now they, I just wanted to grab them. I just wanted to stuff Gizmo in my pocket. Well, no, that sounds horrible. I just wanted to hug him. <laughs> I wanted to hug him so bad. I think actually, you know, I, as a young kid, I was really obsessed with these movies that I loved watching the behind the scenes of Gremlins 2. I really enjoyed it. And one of the coolest things I learned was that they actually had to film all the things with the actors first. Every scene with the actors was the first things they would film. And then they would film all the things with the puppets for many, many weeks back to back. I would love to be on that set to show up and not have to worry about the actor being late, the actor still in their chair. Oh, the actor has to go to the bathroom. Oh, the actor has to eat. No, we're just waiting on puppets. We're just waiting on the coolest puppets ever. That sounds to me like the most fun on set I'm sure this crew had. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they had to delete a bunch of scenes out of the film because there was too many gremlin scenes. Did you hear that sentence? Too many gremlin scenes. There is nothing wrong with that sentence. I, give me all the gremlin scenes. This movie had singing. This movie had them like screaming and dancing and playing with science and they were flying. And uh, this film was everything you would want in a gremlins movie and more. Thank you, Joe. Every gremlin dream come true. 
and cameos, too. Christopher Lee, isn't it? Yes. That's right. That's right. As a mad scientist, of course. Oh, so. of course. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They even had, like, Dracula. Um, how was the guy with the big blonde mustache? Talk Hogan bursts out of the screen to battle them. Every single cameo was so much fun. One of my favorite details and moments, because I loved that film when I was growing up, was Rambo. I love when Gizmo just puts that little red bandana and he's just like, just like ready to kill, like Rambo style. I was like, yes, Gizmo couldn't get more badass. Seriously, I love him. The first film, of course, was in the small town and the second film puts the... Uh the two young heroes inside this ridiculous... Smart building. Smart building. Smart yeah. building. I mean, I wonder how the pitch room went. Gremlins 2 is going to take place in New York. Okay, you would think it would take place in the city, in the streets. Uh, you know, you would think it would take place in a much grander scale. But the fact that they still kept it contained in a smart building that had all the things, <laughs> everything you can imagine was in this building... I think made it that much more fun. It almost became like a box of toys for these gremlins to play with and mess around with. Uh, I think that setting was really creative <laughs> and also very dangerous territory for these little creatures. similar mode of gremlins is uh, Krampus. So it's Christmas time. Supposed to be happy, happy times. And suddenly this new movie Krampus comes out. And I was like to my family, this film looks great. It's got Toni Collette. She's a wonderful actress, wonderful actress. And it's about some German holiday uh, celebration. That's all I told my family. They had no idea. They're like, oh, that sounds very cultural. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, let's watch it. My mom's face, let me tell you, my mom's face, the moment this evil little gingerbread man, he's just like <laughs> going crazy. My mom's face was like, like, she was horrified. But what I love about Krampus, it totally brought that old school, you know, Gremlins vibe that these practical uh, elements of it look so cool of the horror and the gore where things look like animatronics with a little bit of CGI, but they're so silly and they're so extended so wild. I still remember this, I can't remember if it was a toy, but had these giant teeth. It was amazing. I've never seen anything like that. But also I think it was really fun that the family was kind of dysfunctional that the family doesn't get along in Krampus. It kind of reminded me of every Christmas dinner out there where you invite the cousins you don't like, the uncle you never see, <laughs> the new boyfriend of the sister. Krampus really brought a perfect example of the stress of Christmas time and your family. And this poor little boy has to get through that. Also Krampus, I think, has the best opening to any Christmas film I've ever seen. It's the best Boxing Day, uh, Black Friday example ever. <laughs> that is exactly how chaotic and crazy it gets at the mall. It's by far the best scene I've ever seen to a Christmas movie. But it gets, it gets also not only scary and fun, I think Krampus has a really beautiful balance of humor and horror at the same time. But it has those great moments when it gets really dark from the point of view of the little boy when you meet Krampus, when you meet this legend, this folklore that we've all heard about come to life. And those are the moments in Krampus that are really dark and really sinister, that it goes from so much wacky and funny and fun in the house with these crazy family characters to when you actually have the little boy in danger outside of the house uh, with no roof to protect him, nothing but him. That was, that was a good turn in Krampus for me. But the best part is, is that it's a point of view of a little boy. I think those are the most vulnerable characters that you really feel that fear and that those sensibilities that kids bring, they have a much bigger imagination 
and they can get traumatized a lot easier than than we can as adults. Well, actually, I don't know. I, I think kids can get through it maybe better, but I, I think that point of view always so, makes it so much more fun when you bring them in such a crazy, whimsical, you know, world that if it's real or not, you feel exactly what they're feeling because their imagination is what carries these films, I think. Till recently, my daughter hadn't seen many horror films, and I showed her Krampus five years ago or something like that, and she still says, that traumatized me. That traumatized you? Anyway, but uh, yes. Yeah. When I first saw it, I mean, when I first saw Gremlins when I was really little, it did traumatize me. Actually, I think the movie that scared me the most was E.T. I could not get through that. I, I thought he was the most evil alien out there. <laughs> But I think it's, it's, it's because as a kid, you, when you watch these kinds of films, whether it's Krampus, Gremlins, or any kind of subgenre in the horror side, you're imagining a lot more dark and bigger things than what's on screen. You're almost imagining yourself in it, I think. I think that was one of the coolest experiences watching horror movies as a kid, is that I saw myself every single time in these films. My first experience was Chucky. I, I felt I was the little boy, you know, inviting this doll. And I believe myself in those shoes. So your daughter definitely felt she was in that world. I guarantee it. Well, that's effectively putting you in the point of view of the person, right? That's then big, one of your biggest tools, one of your biggest goals as a director. Yeah. Yeah, if these characters are not relatable or they're not people that you care for, it's gonna be really hard to follow the story. I think horror always is so creative in bringing us such iconic and memorable characters that are complex, that are rounded. And heck, and sometimes they are the evil ones and they're the ones we cheer for because we always wanna know why they get so, so mean, why they get so evil, what got them there? I think horror lets us love our protagonists and love our antagonists. It allows us to like both. Apocalyptic horror. On the one hand, it's like there are films about loneliness, right? Being alone. At the same time, is there a wish fulfillment aspect of that too? And that you're the last person standing <laughs> with your run of the place? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think apocalyptic horror is, is a perfect example of what we're capable of and how we're not far from being there. One of the film that actually made me go to film school was Children of Men. So I've never seen a film that proves how humanity is the most scary thing out there. How humanity can carry every single decision in what our destination is. Uh, we are the ones that control and have the responsibility of how our world is going to end or how our world will be or what it's coming to. I think apocalyptic horror is one of those subgenres that really show us an incredible and an intense reality check of where we're at. I think that sense of hope in these films is important to still have on them, that we can change as a humanity, we can change as a society to not get there. When you look at movies like I Am Legend, Will Smith's character, he was still trying to figure this out. He was still trying to make sure that this cure will work. Where did I go wrong? But the loneliness takes over. The loss of everything that ever mattered to you ends up pretty much controlling the rest of your life. I think what that movie did incredible though was to make a man's best friend the most important element uh, in our lives. And I think the representation of that dog is that animals don't do what humans do to each other. Animals, no matter what we decide as humans, they'll still love us. A man's best friend, a dog, they're not going to judge you. They're going to love you forever. And I think that moment when 
Will Smith really lost everything that matters. I think every audience member in that theater was, me too. Like every, I, I was crying. I was definitely crying. But it's interesting. Every apocalyptic horror I liked and I've really resonated with is very close to reality. I think we experiment so much in medicine that I thought, oh man, I am legend. I think we can get there pretty quick <laughs> if we continue to mess around with these things. Um, even movies like that don't have much of an explanation, like Bird Box with Sandra Bullock. That too is really cool how they don't actually show us what they're looking at. They just put you straight in the shoes of everybody in that world that has to be blindfolded. So you you never know what the problem is. The problem is us. The problem is us as a society. When we want to survive, we do the most uh, sinful things. And in movies like Bird Box, it really focuses psychologically what our demons are. And those are the things that we're most afraid of. So when we see in the darkness or when we see in the distance the darkest, most horrifying, most atrocious, vain things, it's not far from how we would, we would act in our worst times. And I think the people in, in the film of Bird Box just happen to encounter their biggest demons, whether it's you take your own life like many of the characters did in that movie or you do the most heinous things to others. And we see that in that house when they're all stuck together, all these strangers, how some of them have other plans. And these are plans that maybe they were thinking about in their dreams or maybe they were thinking about in their lowest times. And to actually see people go that far, I think that's... That's why the apocalyptic horror exists. It, it's showing us where we can get. Sorry, that was really dark. I'm sorry. I got no, really dark really fast. Dark, dark's fine. <laughs> okay. Got no problem with dark. Okay, um, our apocalyptic films also survival stories, maybe texts and, you know, what to do in this situation. Yeah. Can we learn from these films? 100%. I think sometimes when we're in that adrenaline rush of surviving, that's sometimes when we don't think logically and you need to take a step back and think. We even do that still today when you're rushing to get to your next meeting, you're stuck in traffic and you're already trying to survive this day. You don't think logically. But when, when you watch movies with that apocalyptic subgenre, it's really cool to see characters come together and actually take a second to be smart. I think we don't take enough time in our day to just give ourselves some credit that we can survive. We can think of good logical ways to make our day happen and make our day worth it. I think that's why these films are really neat and really relatable because the decisions that characters make are possible. I mean, you do look at Brad Pitt in World War C. He's the number one hero that's gonna help us all. He is Brad Pitt, of course. He can, he can fight anything except for him. <laughs> But everybody else, you know, in some of the other films I've seen, like Sandra Bullock, for example, that we were just talking about her. Characters like that, somebody that did not want to carry this unexpected pregnancy, I already know she's got a lot of things to figure out. As a character from the beginning to the end, I already know, oh man, she's not making the right decisions. But when you put yourself in a, in a live or die situation, you have to think straight. You have to, or you're gonna end up on the ground like everybody else. These films teach us to just take a step back and consider maybe somebody else has a better idea, or maybe just consider that you too can survive. That was Gigi Sal Guerrero. Join us next time for Max Brooks. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Zayenga. Produced by Kurt Zayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. 
The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazes, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. <laughs> <laughs>